Hi, this is Greg Kilstrom. Welcome to season three of the Agile World, where we discuss customer and employee experience, organizational and workforce transformation, and how business can adapt and continually improve in an Agile age. The Agile World podcast is brought to you by Tech Systems, an industry leader in full stack technology services, talent services, and real world application. For more information, go to techsystems.com. To read more about the topics discussed in this show, you can go to my website at theagile.world and read my latest articles or get a copy of my latest book, The Agile Workforce, now available on Amazon and other retailers. My name is Greg Kilstrom, and I'm the host of the Agile World podcast. Today, we're going to talk about the small and mid-sized business and how they can successfully create great brand experiences. To help me discuss this topic, I'd like to welcome John D. Hansen, President, Consultant, and Speaker at Accelerated Revenue. John, welcome to the show. Thanks, Greg. I, I, I'm going to give a plug for you right off the top. If anybody has yet to read The Center of Experience, I've thoroughly enjoyed that book, and that's what got me introduced to you and what you do. So get this book added to your reading list. I guarantee you'll enjoy it. Thank you for having me on the show, Greg. Yeah, no, thank you. I, I, appreciate, I appreciate the plug as well. So um, looking forward to talking with you. I know you and I have had several conversations, um, but glad we're, we're recording this one for for others to be able to, to listen in on. So why don't, why don't you start by giving a little background on yourself and, and what you do? Sure. So I started my own consulting firm in January of 2020. It looked like we were going to be in the black in April, had speaking gigs and consulting clients lined up. And then like a lot of people, <laughs> the pandemic disrupted all of that. Well, two pivots later, and I'm in the best opportunity of my life. I work with great leadership here at Accelerated Revenue and been entrusted with growing that arm of the business, which is consulting, keynote speaking, and workshop facilitation. And I think what's unique about us, Greg, is that we have a three-prong approach where we, through education, help a client understand both the cost savings and what how important culture is, customer and employee experience and productivity. And then we also address cash flow, and we do this through in a fractional model, very similar to yours, where we bring in fractional experts, for whatever the business needs to fit their goals, their budgets, because small and mid-sized companies, they need this. 99.6% uh, of businesses in Ohio, the state I live in, are small, 100 employees or less, according to the SBA. So the need is everywhere. And ours is so unique that we can work within the small and mid-sized companies' budgets and goals, whereas the larger companies that can charge what they charge, can't they can't afford that, or don't want to take a chance on a solo consultant that's trying to do everything themselves. Yeah. And so that's why I'm so excited about this. We launched this officially in February, beginning beta testing um, this quarter and looking forward to how we can make a difference in the small and mid-sized company world. Great. Well, and that's a, that's a great segue into what I wanted to talk with about um, today is the small and medium-sized companies. And there's some things that I would say apply broadly as when, when we start talking about customer experience, but what are some of the unique things that that these smaller and mid-sized companies face in, in terms of CX? Yeah, I think they're more aware of it now. It's certainly a, a major topic in the Fortune 100 and 500 company space. There's more and more CCOs, chief customer officers or chief experience officers. Now it's getting to be commonplace. The advantage that small and mid-sized companies have compared to those large companies that have more resources and have official roles designated for this, those companies are so massive that transformational change in the customer or employee experience is so difficult and takes so much time. 
And with how fast the pace of changes and how the market shifts and moves, it, it's so hard for large companies to successfully transform their organization, especially if their DNA and their culture just isn't there. Small and mid-sized companies, on the other hand, while they're limited in resources, they are so agile and so lean where they can apply these changes company-wide almost instantly and start seeing the quick wins and the return on an investment the large companies just can't do because of scale, because of size. So it's actually an advantage, even though resources can be a challenge. And I think there's a growing awareness in the market of small and mid-sized companies. What is the CX thing? What is this customer experience thing I hear about? Is this just money we're going to throw away and hope that people have a better experience? What's the return on this? Well, we have more and more data and more and more stats to prove that no matter what size company, no matter what industry, you intentionally invest in customer experience, it will come back to you, especially now. You kind of mentioned a, a little bit about this when you're describing what I would call agility in um, in in these smaller organizations. But when when a smaller org is competing with a larger company with you know, deeper bench, more money, more customers, more established, perhaps in, in, in many cases, what are some other ways, uh, maybe even different ways, or what are some ways to use that agility and that ability to be nimble that, that helps them compete better with, with larger organizations? I would say the fact that they can get the voice of the employee and the voice of the customer that much easier because they don't have to sift through hundreds, if not thousands of employees and customers, they can identify in a day who are your top clients and who are your employees that are fully bought in, that do a great job, whatever their role is, because those are two great areas of invaluable data you can get to very quickly as a small and mid-sized company, sift through it, organize it, and then find out, all right, of the top clients, how much do they contribute to our bottom line? Have we engaged them for their feedback? Do they know how valuable they are to us? Similar to the VOE, the voice of the employee. You've got some people that have, may have worked for you for 5, 10, 15, 20 years. They know the pain points. They hear it regularly. You can take action on some of those things immediately at no cost or low cost and start seeing the impact right away. So resources are not the thing. If resources were what drove improvement, Greg, then Chick-fil-A in quick service food would not be the only one at the top. Right. Disney for amusement parks wouldn't be the only one at the top. Uh, Nordstrom for retail. I mean, you can look at these outliers that are in industries that are notorious for poor customer experience. And it's not just because of scale. It has more to do with intentionality than it does with resources. And I, I like that you use the both examples of both customer experience and employee experience. That's certainly the, the book that you mentioned, Center of Experience. That's a that's a key um, key part of that is the just that there is a relationship. There, it's not always a direct you know correlation causation, but they are definitely related and 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 have the ability to influence one another. Um, and I, I use the term brand experience to kind of summarize yes. um, CX and EX together. So. You know, kind of t thinking through return on investment and just measuring success. How do you recommend you know these these smaller and and mid sized companies think about measurement of success? Again, knowing that you know there's there's some limitations as well as some opportunities there. I would go back to what I mentioned a, a few minutes ago. 
And we know that the easiest sale, meaning time invested, investment put in, it cost uh, all that personnel devoted to is repeat and referral. And your greatest source then is going to the ones that are your repeat, that already know, like, and trust you, that love doing business with you. Go to those, go to those top clients and ask them, get their feedback, find out why they continue to do business with you. And then the, how you measure the success is look at how much easier it's going to be to fill your pipeline with qualified prospects that are either warm introductions, direct referrals, or repeat. Sometimes clients don't know all that you have to offer. They may have only come to you for one thing over and over and over again. And when you, uh, one idea I've, I've had, Greg, I'm going to share real quick. I call it the red carpet experience. Imagine you've identified the top 10% of your clients that not only contribute to your revenue, but repeat and refer as well. Imagine if you had them in for a day with your senior leadership or your ownership, take them for a tour, show them all that you have to offer, ask for their feedback. By the end of that tour, not only will you have underlined the fact of how important they are to you and that their feedback matters, but they may now be aware of things they didn't know your company did. It's a win-win across multiple levels. And so measuring success, you don't want to go with just an NPS or a score or, or, or reviews alone. You want to really look at how many clients do we get organically through the relationships we've already built and established because the cost of chasing new is way more expensive and not guaranteed to lead to repeat and referrals as well. Oftentimes, you know, you, you inherit kind of the platform, the, the people process platforms that, that currently exist and, you know, great, great um, people can make those better and um, improve and everything. But many, many times you've got to justify bigger investments in order to really move the needle and, or, you know, just sometimes you've got to justify bigger investments to even um, measure. So to even right. get, get the needle <laughs> measuring things. So, you know, what, what would, what advice would you give to somebody that, you know, they they know that they're doing they're they know that they're doing well, they could do better, but in order to do that, they got to ask for money. And, you know, as, as you well know, customer experience and, and employee experience as well, it's not always a short-term gain scenario. So it's hard to justify those investments sometimes, you know, what advice would you have to, to somebody that's, that's trying to, to justify, Hey, I need some more resources, what, whether it's time dollars or both um, to, to make bigger improvements and really get better results. Yeah. There's so much data out there, but I'll show the, share the top three, Greg, that I found that had the greatest uh, I would say impact where you could easily prove the case. Uh, I've got a before and after that's fantastic. So we'll start off with that one first. 2019 Zendesk had a global survey of 45,000 companies in 140 countries. So this is a global pulse. And they said within five to 10 years, and this is pre-pandemic, that the driving decision between for consumers was not going to be brand recognition or price. What was going to be the most important factor to them was no like and trust relationships now i think COVID accelerated that magnified that where we're coming out into an era where consumers not only want to know you know how did you take care of me but how did you take care of your team how did you take care of your community at large what did you do how did you value relationships we know that the largest segment of consumers now is millennials that's pew research finding that 
Millennials are the largest base of consumers in the world now. Their value set is tremendously different from my generation that's Gen X and way more different than the generation before of the baby boomers. Relationships are central to them. They'll even pay a little bit more and we have enough data to prove this. Consumers will pay more for a better experience. So you've got that one. You've got Bain & Co. that says that the cost of acquiring new is 5 to 25% more than existing or referrals from existing clients. We have a Harvard Business Review that says that the, the impact of having a great customer experience, the likelihood of them repeating with you is in the high 80%. So if clients of ours or prospects or a business owner listening right now is like, ah, customer experience, I hear it, I see it, it makes sense, but what's the ROI? You can find, just if you just track down those three resources, Zendesk, Bain & Co., and Harvard Business Review, and you do that under a customer experience search, you'll find all kinds of ROI stats that are proven to work. And here's the biggest one. We already know that the marketplace has gone to this value relationship-based decision-making when it comes to buying. The proof of that is that the companies in notoriously poor industries have phenomenal customer and employee experience. I'll give you an example. Chick-fil-A is now the number three chain in the U.S. after McDonald's and Starbucks, and they're only open six days a week. Yeah. They're in a quick service industry. You can get a chicken sandwich anywhere. But why do they do it? It's because of the customer and employee experience and because it's so intentionally and systematically done. You go to any Chick-fil-A in the U.S., you are going to have the same quality of experience because it's baked into their DNA. And a company of any size, small, medium, one location, multiple locations, you can roll this out, but it's gonna take intentionality, it's gonna take investing time and resources, and most importantly, I would say this, Greg, bring in a trusted third party. The reason I say that is not just because I'm a consultant, it's because there's proof that if you have another trusted party that does not have a direct relationship it is more likely that your team is going to buy in than you saying the exact same thing. Yeah. It's that third party verification that businesses, that business team members need to hear to say, all right, our boss has been saying this. Yeah, it sounds like a good idea. I see it everywhere. But here comes this expert that's done it in other locations for other businesses, well-researched. We like and trust this person. We're gonna do it. It's not because they don't respect the business owner. It's because they need to hear another voice saying the same thing so that there's verification that, okay, this does have merit and they're more likely to buy into someone they don't have a close relationship with. And there's proof of that as well. Let's go back to the relationship between employee and, and customer experience a little bit. And, you know, how would you, how would you characterize that as well as, um, you know, what is, uh, let's, we can go negative first, even, and, you know, right. what, what effect does a bad employee experience and low employee engagement have on that end customer experience? Churn, turnover, uh, in both yeah. employees and customers. And it doesn't matter how fast the front door of the building is spinning in revenue. If you've got both team members and clients leaving out the side door and the back door, never to return. That is not something you can win, no matter what size, but especially small companies, small to mid-sized companies. Large companies are just able to hide it better because their revenue is so high and they've got multiple front doors spinning. But the problem is 
exactly the same for any size organization. If people aren't staying in the building, both employees and customers, then it doesn't matter how hard you try to ramp up sales and revenue generation, it's not sustainable. So a poor employee experience is guaranteed to have a negative effect on the customer experience. They're, they're just not inseparable. I like what um, Richard, Richard Branson, Branson, am I saying that right? Yeah, Virgin, yeah. Virgin, Virgin, yeah. Sir Richard Branson said, take the very best care of your people so they take the very best care of your customers. You just can't separate the two. And I know that there's, I've seen some things uh, on social media and LinkedIn that suggest that there's not a direct correlation between happy employees and happy customers. <laughs> but I know there's a direct correlation between unhappy employees and unhappy customers. I, I've worked in enough industries to know that that's just a fact. You, you can't get around that. Do you think that more companies are, like in your experience, do you, are, are more and more orgs starting to see low engagement, bad employee experience as not just an HR problem, um, you know, and I use HR sort of in the, let's call it the classic context of a, a compliance driven and, you know, that process driven type HR approach. I mean, do you, do you think that, that executives and other stakeholders are, are starting to get it? Do you, and, and in the, some of the markets that you work in, are there, are there areas where there still needs to be growth. Like what, what are you seeing in that? I wish I could say that there's a been a big wake up call, Greg, but I think the proof that we're still way behind on that is the great resignation. Yeah. It used to be that blue collar roles were always tough to fill. Now we're seeing it in the white collar space. We're seeing clerical and administrative positions just not getting filled. You can blame COVID. That's an excuse. You can blame the fact that this new childcare credit that's rolling out. That's just an excuse. If you were a magnet, if your business was a magnet and was irresistible to the ideal client and team member, you wouldn't have a problem. I, I know that the industry leaders and customer and employee experience just do not have a problem attracting and keeping great talent. It's because of the fact that they're approaching a point where the pain has gotten so severe that they have to do something about it. And I think the proof of that is in two ways. Number one is that human resources is still doing a check the box approach asking the questions as if these team members aren't free agents that could go just about anywhere and get just about how much they want. That's not important to them. What's most important, they want to know, can I make a difference at your organization? Am I going to be recognized for what I'm bringing to the table as young and as inexperienced or as old and as experienced as I might be? Are you treating me as the asset that I believe I am? Or if I do need development, is HR committed to developing those skills and abilities and talents so that I can be more of an asset? I think HR is really missing the boat on this. And I'd say it's for two reasons. One is that they're overtasked. Yeah. HR departments are so busy trying to keep up with hiring and firing, they don't have time to develop. So I think that's one key problem. But the second one is simply the culture. If you're short-term results driven, if it's every 90 days, you're between a rock and a hard place. And I have an appreciation for that because I can understand if you've got to get a return to the shareholders every 90 days, how can you not be short-term driven? But if Chick-fil-A can get to the point where they're number three in the country, open six days a week in a highly competitive everywhere type of industry, then surely any other business can too. It's just that changing the direction of the Titanic takes so much effort and time 
that this is where small and mid-sized companies have a huge advantage. Not only are they the vast majority of the marketplace and the workforce, but they can pivot and adapt so quickly that they can be years ahead of the large companies and they typically have healthier profit margins too. So when you factor those two things, agility and healthy profit margins with the ability to flex and adapt and pivot quickly, small and mid-sized companies have a huge advantage there. Why do you think then that so many are not, because um, I agree with you. I mean, I think I think the, the agility that, that being smaller, they may have, um, they may have less resources than a large organization to fall back on, to fall back on if something negative happens, but they are, they do have more agility because there's just less, there's less bureaucracy. There's less red tape, right. all that, all that kind of stuff. But what, you know, what, what do you think is, I mean, I, there's so many things going on, so it's hard to, it's easy to, I think, conflate the, as you were saying as well, the, you mm-hmm. know, the pandemic with, with new regulations, with, um, you know, great resignation, which I think probably a topic for a whole other show, but it has right. been something long simmering and building yes. and just recently kind of, you know, re- released, so to speak. But, you know, what is, is the same problem <laughs> that is causing, uh, it feels like, I'll give myself a second to, to formulate a question here. So yeah, is the same problem that is causing um, these companies to be able to be nimble also holding them back because they're, I, I always say the flip side of agility is, is reactivity. You know, to me, agile is a, is a scientific methodical way of, of approaching things that is thought, thought of in shorter, shorter increments, but it's not reactive in a, Oh my God, every, the sky's falling 24 hours ago and let's change everything. Do you think it's, it's kind of a, 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 a double-sided thing like that? Or, you know, what do you, what do you think is holding back from, from embracing this? Three things come to mind right away, Greg. And I would say the first one is the illusion of success. Simply because your doors have been open for 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 years does not mean that you're a healthy, thriving organization. Yes, you yeah. are still in business compared to plenty that have gone out of business, but that can be an illusion of, Hey, our doors are still open. We're doing great. Well, maybe now, but we know that the pace of change is so rapid. If you're not adapting then and and learning what's going on in the workforce and in the marketplace, eventually you get behind, you get in survival mode and you get to the point where you're just struggling to keep the doors open. And you're like, we were doing so well, we were open for so long. And it seems like quote unquote, overnight, the company starts to decline or goes under. Well, that didn't magically happen overnight. One book that I highly recommend is How the Mighty Fall by Jim Collins. Not that big of a book compared to some of his others, but it really highlights the point that there are phases that companies go through before they get to the point where it's clear that the ship is sinking and going under stage five. But there's things that kind of lead up to that where stage three is kind of the pivot point. Once companies get to stage four, which is desperation, then you see all kinds of things going on efforts to prop up the sinking ship that aren't working because stage five is where it goes under, gets bought out, or it's it's existing, but it's never the same as it was before. So I think the illusion of success, busy times can mask a lot of problems. So if you're doing quite well in spite of a pandemic, that can mask the, the issues that are still there. 
it's just your revenue so good that in business is so good, there's no, you don't feel there's a need to address it. The second thing I would say is the pace of change. Pre-COVID, I had a great presentation, got to see one by a PhD that she said that the pace of change at the beginning of the century was companies could reinvent themselves every 78 years. <laughs> 78 years. Wow. Fast forward to the 80s, about every 15 years. Now, if you look at it, uh, where we're in the, in the 2000s, it's every five. So the pace of change, now reinvention does not mean something totally different. You gotta change our product service. It just means how you deliver it, how you package it, how you present it. And she shared this, this graph that showed if companies get to the top of a bell curve of growth and start going down the other side where business starts to decline, she said 10% of companies can survive that point. But if you're not already figuring out how to pivot and reinvent on the upside of growth, then you're likely to get to the point where you plateau or decline to the point you never recover. That's the pace of change that's going on. And so the third thing I would say is change itself. I know it sounds kind of basic and we've heard this so many times before, but I read a great book by Dan and Chip Heath called Switch, How to Change When Change is Difficult or Change is Hard. And it's all about change management, which is an actual process. But here's the thing, Greg, change management, if you don't have someone with that has that in mind and is aware of the pace of change, meaning every five years, and it could get even faster than that, you're already automatically behind. So I think those three factors, the illusion of success, the pace of change, and then just the resistance to change itself. If you're not aware of those things, not planning for those things, then you're in what you called very accurately, a reactive situation, which is survival. If you want to thrive, then you've got to be proactive. And yeah. those are some factors I think businesses need to seriously consider and invest into so that they can stay ahead. Um, well, so one one last question before we wrap up. Um, you are a fellow author um, as, as well. And I, I always like to talk about at least a little bit about the process of writing because um, I think it's it's just kind of helpful to, to talk through that stuff. So your book, which I enjoyed very much as well, um, Wow Your Customers, Seven Ways to World-Class Service, um, talks about delivering world-class customer experience. What was the, what did you learn as, as part of writing the book? And um, I always like to ask as well, what, what might you do differently with the follow-up, um, you know, from a, from a process standpoint? Yeah, I, I enjoyed so much. I, I've heard, and now I know it's true, that the people that write the book, especially if there's a lot of research and personal experience that goes into it, they learn far more than the people actually yeah. getting the book. And I did. I, I learned so much. The crazy thing, Greg, is that it almost didn't happen. I, I was new to a B2B sales role. I knew I had a strength in customer service, and I thought, how do I leverage this to get record sales, which I did. My first full year, I set record sales in my territory over people that had experience in the industry that I didn't. And I've been doing it for far longer than I had. But I did that because I learned how do I leverage that customer service strength? Because I learned that it's about relationships. I'm really good about building relationships and earning and keeping trust. And I'm a solution salesperson. I am not a commodity salesperson. I'm never going to beat you on price. I will beat you on value, though. And so it, it was a New Year's resolution. I'm going to spend less time in front of a screen and more time reading so that I can earn these record sales. Well, while I was reading these books, it was like one idea after another jumped off the page. Like, well, I did that when I was in customer service roles. I realized I need to put this into a book. 
um, more for my sake than for others, but if it can be a resource for frontline customer service agents or for people who manage them, then I need to share these ideas and put it in a, in a book that's easy to read, fun to read, full of great ideas, low or no cost, they can implement right away. So I did that. The, the process took a, oh, over a year or so, about 18 months to complete from start to finish. And Brian Tracy, who's written and published a lot of books, said that 85% of people that have a book idea never bring it to completion. So you and I, Greg, and anybody else listening that's written a book and published it, you're in the top 15% as it is. But what I would do differently in a follow-up is I knew that customer service was important, but I didn't realize the scale of the customer experience. I, I have a, a presentation called Customer Discovery, where I believe that there's four types of customers. And the two most obvious ones are the first ones that everyone goes to, the external and then the internal customer, but then there's two levels deeper. And so in a, right, a follow-up, I would not only stress the return of investment and how the market is so customer experience-centered now, especially, but I'd also go a little bit deeper into the types of customers because as soon as you silo customer experience into just the people that pay you money, you're already eliminating the opportunity to address the customers that are actually even more important than the ones who pay you money. Don't tell the customers I said that. <laughs> but there are people that are more important to the customer experience holistically than just the ones who pay you money. And so that's what I would do differently. I would add those elements, ROI and customer discovery, as I call it, so that you have a holistic approach to the customer experience that I have yet to see in the market. Wonderful. Yeah, no, that's that's great. I completely agree about the the learning aspect of, of the writing process too. Is just um, that's why I, I keep doing it. Is there's there's just always more to kind of unpack and, and yes. learn and everything. So yeah, it's it's a, it's a great uh, great great part of the part of that process. <laughs> Uh, well, John, uh, thank you so much for joining the show. This has been great. Um, for those listening, uh, what's the best way for them to keep up with you and, and what you're doing? Three ways. One is LinkedIn. Uh, I've got almost 25,000 connections there and, and more followers than that. I, I love that platform. Uh, content out daily. So John D. Hansen on LinkedIn. You can also listen to the Heroic Experience. It's available on the multiple podcast download channels. That's uh, the heroic experiences for small business owners, executives, managers, and entrepreneurs uh, gleaning from people's stories of success they've had in their business and for their clients. And then the third way would be through our website, accrev.com. That's Accelerated Revenue's website. You can find all kind of information on, on me, on keynote speaking, on workshop facilitation, on consulting. Those are the three ways that people can stay in touch. Well, again, I'd like to thank John D. Hansen, President, Consultant, and Speaker at Accelerated Revenue for joining the show. Thanks for listening to The Agile World with Greg Kilstrom. See you next week. Thanks again for listening to The Agile World Podcast, brought to you by Tech Systems. I'm your host, Greg Kilstrom. If you enjoyed the show, please take a minute to subscribe on your podcast channel of choice and leave us a rating so that others can find the show more easily. You can learn more and get a copy of my latest book, The Agile Workforce, from my website at theagile.world.